Father, this morning we just come to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus once again. That name you have given us. The way you have made for us through your son. Through his blood and through his body. We can come to you. Boldly, confidently, without fear. Knowing who our father is. And receive mercy and grace for this hour. And I pray and by faith I bring the whole church, Lord. Here, everywhere. Before thee, we pray, Lord. Receive your mercy by faith. And we confess your grace is sufficient for us today. Every trial, every testing, every battle we have to face today. Through your grace, O Lord, we will come through. Thank you, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Speak to us now. Pray through us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. We go back to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and then 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31. These three now abide. Now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. How many of you read today's morning devotion? It was good. It was good. <laughs> I don't know, it just fell into what I was teaching and like it was good. It tells you so simple, very simple. No? Very simple, the nature of love and God's love, the difference. So the greatest of these is love. Remember the word there is agape, God's love. Okay, not eros, not philia. It is agape. It's the greatest of this is love. And then First Corinthians twelve thirty one, he's saying, and the whole chapter is about gifts. We need gifts. Without gifts, honestly, natural or supernatural, without gifts, we will not excel. We need gifts. He says, so earnestly desire the best gifts. Yet, he says, I show you a more excellent way. That is the entire chapter 13 about the more excellent way God has shown us is the way of love. But these three things go together. Hope, faith, and love. Love should be the motivating factor because you can have faith without love. And we saw it at the end. It will all mean nothing. So God as a father is trying to tell his children. Okay. God is our father. God is also our judge. So as a father he's telling us. Okay. I love you all. But when you stand before me on that day. Please understand these other ways I will judge you. So I don't want your life post salvation on earth a waste. You do so many things. And you have stacked up like a haystack. Hay, straw, wood. And then when it goes through the fire, it's all gone. Because you didn't know how you are going to be evaluated. Like, you know, in the old days for entrance exam, we had this multiple, um, this thing, what you call choice questions, okay? And we went ahead, okay, fine. If we go wrong, okay, it does not matter if I get. Then came negative marking. When negative marking came in, fear of the Lord came upon us. And we decided we are not going to do this because if you get it wrong, you lose. You lose. Okay, so the thing is that somebody 
who did entered in the exam with the old concept there is no negative marking and he did not the answer he says it doesn't matter no if i take i am not going to lose anything okay but he lost if he hadn't done it probably he would have scraped through but because he did not you know so we need to know how because you see we are not running for our salvation we are running for something that is eternal eternal imperishable crown the bible says it is eternal so we need to know how god judges and god says this is how i will judge you ultimately i will judge you for your faith for your works but what what motivated it that's where the word of god comes it is a living word which cuts through the division between the soul and the spirit and god the intents and the thoughts god will show you okay you what you did is right it's a great blessing but your intention was wrong your intention was self glory okay intention was so that is where we need to understand but we need to realize these three go together so going back to fundamentals hebrews 11:1 because we have to finally come to faith because we are called to live by faith and a faith is a substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen that means before faith hope comes you cannot have faith unless you have hope okay you cannot have faith unless you have you're hoping for something and therefore you start believing for it and working towards it the fact that you hope you really hope for something the substance of it is faith substance okay hope without faith it is false hope you don't really mean it you just say it but you don't really mean it if you hope for something then there is faith and faith is the substance there are works in faith faith is the substance of things you are hoping for so faith does not come first hope comes first but when you are talking about biblical hope god's kind of hope before hope can come love comes love comes if god is not a god of love or if god is not love the god who loves we have no hope therefore we will have no faith we will fall into religion then our hope and our faith is in our works alone or if you don't believe in god at all you become an atheist and say eat drink and marry who knows about tomorrow so if god is not a god of love okay we have no hope it is the fact that god is love is where our hope is birthed okay god is holy god is right you see none of these things give us hope <laughs> it only brings fear of judgment see god is holy that's why he's and god is righteous that's why he told adam and eve that if you eat you will die they ate then they, they ate and they died but when he comes into the garden okay before he judges them and cast that drives them out of the garden and death has begun in the physical realm for them in genesis chapter 3 and verse 16 it is not the god of holiness it's not the god of righteousness yes it is but more than that he uh, he uh, uh 315 i think 315 just look at 315 yeah 315 
3 and verse 1, 5. It's not coming? It's stuck? Okay. Oh, it's no simple. We, I like, no, that's, I have the one which never gets stuck. This is the problem with systems. Okay. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Did you see that? The first promise in the Bible is this. This is the first promise in the Bible. You take this promise of we have no hope. See? Man sinned against God's holiness, against his, his righteousness. Judgment has come. But it is not judgment without hope. It's judgment with hope. There is hope for you. There is hope for you. And where does that hope come from? The hope comes from because God is a God of love. Okay. God is not a God who is holy and righteous. Yes, that is who he is. But he also is a God of love. And the first thing he births in man after the fall is hope. And that hope comes because God is a God of love. And it would come upon his son because God is a God of righteousness. Like yesterday, we looked at it. And, no, and we have looked at it before. This was what the enemy misunderstood. Okay, The enemy who has been with God and was made perfect in wisdom, he understands God pretty well. He knows God is holy, God is righteous. That's why he was kicked out of heaven. He understands that. Then he sees Adam being created in God's image. And he sees something. God loves man. And he's shocked. And he is jealous, he is evil, he is wicked, so he thought, you know what, this is a wonderful plan. God is holy, God is righteous, so he hates unrighteousness, lawlessness, sin. God is love and he loves man. If he can bring both together, if he can make the one whom God loves to sin, then you got God in a situation. If God judges him, you can say God is unloving. If God does not judge him, you can say God is unrighteous. He thought catch 22 got him in a trap. That is why it's called the mystery of the cross, which was hidden for ages until Jesus died and rose again. Because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord. Because in that, that's what uh, Corinthians 5.21, right? 1 Corinthians 5.21. This is the love of God. And the righteousness of God coming together. I think it's First Corinthians five twenty one. Second Corinthians five twenty one. Look at that. The seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. How would he do that? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Just a mystery. Nobody understood. Nobody understood. Not even the prophets who prophesied or the devil who heard and read the prophecies. Nobody understood. This is where the love of God and the righteousness of God. God made him who was without sin to become sin for us. And on the cross, he died for us. God's righteousness is met. His love is met. Now all of universe is amazed at God's wisdom and says he is loving and he is righteous. So when we reject the cross... We are rejecting both. We are rejecting the love of God and we are rejecting the righteousness of God. And this is a righteousness of God. We receive it by faith. 
God will not compromise on either. He won't compromise on his love because that is who he is. He won't compromise on righteousness and his holiness because that is who he is. And the mystery of the cross comes over here. So we need to understand what God births in the Garden of Eden is hope. And from that time, man has been hoping. What is he hoping for? He's hoping for he would be rescued from death. Because the wages of sin is death. And death would be overcome. So there is this aspiration or a hope for eternal life and a life with God. So he said, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And that's why Jesus came. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Okay? So if death is destroyed, then I have hope. Death is destroyed, then I have hope. Okay, as long as death is not destroyed, I don't have hope. So first Peter and words one three. This is the living hope. Okay. There is living hope and there is hope which is not living. In religion, you don't have a living hope. Like you know, if you ask any devout Muslim, he will add one word which is called insala. <laughs> God willing, who knows? Any religious person, when it comes to death, there is no certainty. There is no certainty. There is no certainty. But to us, God says, He has birthed us into a living hope. How? Where does the living hope come from? The resurrection of the dead. That is the proof. When Jesus rose from the dead, He is the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. He lives forever and ever. That's my hope. That's why he is the firstborn among many. Because, because others were risen. Elijah raised, Elisha raised, Jesus raised, Peter raised. They all died. They all died. But there is a second resurrection. There is a resurrection that is coming. The resurrection of the dead. And what is that? It is not an idea. It is just not a theology. But Jesus, the proof is that. So that is where my hope comes. Faith is the substance of the things hoped for. So you ask, why do you hope to be not to die anymore? To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. The reason is the substance is Christ. Where is Christ? He's on the right hand side of the Father. He died and rose again. And therefore, if I am in Him, I cannot die. Even if I die, I rise and I am in Him and with Him. So the Bible says, He has raised us up and seated us in Him on the right hand side of the Father. So it's a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a maybe so. It's an absolute certain hope. Unless you have this hope, you will not overcome fear. Because those who overcome the enemy in Revelation 21 and 12, 11, it is written, they overcame him, that is the accuser of the devil, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of the testimony. And the Bible says, they did not love their lives even unto death. Why? Why are they not afraid? Why are they not afraid? Because they have this living hope. Death cannot kill me. So if I die, I know where I am going. Because the reason is, we are dealing with a lot of people who are extremely fearful. Extremely fearful. Because fearful people will only go to a point. After that, they will not. They will not. Because you see, you don't want fearful people in the army. They will run. They will not be able to fight this fight and finish the race because the devil know where you can stop. 
So there is a set of people who will be overcomers in the eternity. The reason they were overcome is because they overcame the devil. And the reason they overcame the devil was they would not fear death. Why did they not fear death? Because they were begotten into a reality they experienced, a living hope. Because they saw Jesus and he says, yes, he rose and therefore I will rise again. That's how it works. That's our work. So our hope will be tested. Our faith will be tested. Okay. When our faith is tested, if our hope is not real, we will fail. Our faith will be tested. Our hope will be tested. Our love will be tested. All these three will be tested. Okay. Go to Second Corinthians chapter 1, 8 to 10. This is Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 to 10. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. This is the truth of people who go into difficult mission field. And he's an extremely hostile mission field, Asia, full of idols and religions. This is not... Islamic Asia. It is pre-Islamic Asia. So we are not even going into a place where there are no idols. You are going into a place full of idols and religions. So he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Brethren of the, our trouble which came to us in Asia, we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, that we despaired even of life. That we are going to kill, get killed over here. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. He says, we were pushed to the wall, back against the wall. And now we are seeing the intent of God. Why? He says, you know what? I don't want you to put your trust in yourself. Go, go to verse 9. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So you're, you're back to the hope in resurrection. And verse 10. Who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust, he will still deliver us. So he says we despaired of life. Meaning we came to a point that we had no more hope in this life. No more hope in this life. We had come to that point. And why did God do that? So that we wouldn't trust in ourselves. We wouldn't trust in ourselves. That we would trust in God. So what is being tested over there, you will see what is being tested is their hope is being tested. Does your hope have substance? What do you actually believe in? What do you actually believe in? No? What do you actually let's look at the practical, this is the theoretical application in Paul's life. Let us look at the actual practical application when hope and faith have to go together and love. Acts chapter 17, 13 to 20. This is when he's being taken as a prisoner to Rome and he's in that ship. The ship is lost. It's floating around. It's not going anywhere. But when the... No, no, not 17. 27. 27. Acts 27. Okay. Acts 27. 13 to 20. When the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempest headwind also rose called Eurocleden. 
So when the ship was caught and could not heed head into the wind, we let her drive. Running under the shelter of an island called Cloda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing that lest they should run aground on the certain sands, they struck sail, so were driven. Because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship, meaning they started showing, throwing away. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle aboard. First, they took threw away all the, what do you call it, the wares they had gathered to sell. Okay, they threw it all out. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle. You don't throw a ship's tackle. <laughs> you know what a ship's tackle is? Those are the ropes and the chains which you use to tie up everything. Now they're throwing off the tackle overboard with our own hands. Now we the men, neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us. What was given up? All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Now, this is a hope in the temporal. So everybody gave up hope. It's finished. We are going to starve. We are going to die. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Verse 21. Okay? Let's go further. Now let's go to verse 21. But after a long abstinence from food, okay, they haven't eaten for a long time, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. Now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. This one man, only one believer in 276 people in the boat, one believer. See, only the believer can bring hope in a hopeless situation. But he must be a believer who knows his God. So, when everyone has given up hope, hope comes. And hope comes because there is somebody who is able to speak to them. And he says, I urge you, take heart, there will be no loss of life, but only of the ship. Next verse. Verse 23. Reason. What is the reason? For there stood by me this night an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and to whom I serve. This is the key. This is the key. So now he is testifying to them. This night there stood by me who? An angel of the Lord. Angel of God who to whom I belong. So the first question we need to ask is, if your hope does not have faith, then it has no substance. Faith is the substance. The first question you need to ask is, whom do I belong? Whom do I belong? People in the world do not have hope because they do not know whose they are. The first thing this man, the reason he's able to give hope is because he has faith and his faith has substance. And the first reason his faith has substance, he says, I know to whom I belong. The second question you need to ask is, whom do you serve? That's what it says, whom I serve. If I belong to God and if I am serving God, then he is in charge of my days and my time and my destiny. 
So it doesn't matter how hopeless a situation looks. I will not die before my time. And if even I myself am not able to hear in my spirit the future, and when the situation has reached so hopeless, he will send an angel to speak to me. And he sent an angel to speak to me. This is how hope is birthed. This is how he is able to give hope. Because you know what? His faith has substance. He says, I know whom I belong to. I know whom I, whom I serve. These two things fundamentally we need to know. Whom do I belong to? Whom am I serving? If I belong to God, and if I belong, if I'm serving God, then I don't have to fear that He is in charge of my life. My only job is to do what He tells me to do. That's what God actually meant by seek ye first the kingdom of God and my righteousness, His righteousness. All these things shall be. I am in charge. If you belong to me and you are serving me, it doesn't matter how hopeless your situation looks. Your situation is not going to determine your destiny. I determine your destiny. And he is the God of life and death. He's not a, he's not a human master. He's the divine master. And that's what he's saying. And then immediately he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why should I not be afraid? Look at that verse 24. How does it mean? Not only did an angel stand by me. What did the angel? He stood beside me saying, Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing from the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So when everyone had given up hope, and there is in their midst one man who belongs to God, who serves God, he receives what we call a Rima word of God. And he says, you know what? Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Because God is interested in you, and he has a plan for you to stand before Caesar. All these 276 people here will not die for your sake. Will not die for your sake. You see, this is how it works. This is how hope has substance. If you go to Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 11 and then come back to 24-25. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. He says, when my word goes forth, it can be directly through his spirit, it can through an angel, it can be through the written word where the spirit speaks, it can through different formats, but it is the word that has gone out from his mouth. He says, it will not return to me empty, useless. It will accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. Only one condition. When that word comes to you, do you believe? Do you believe? Now go to verse 24 and 25. For there stood by me an angel of the Lord, whom I be God, whom I belong, whom I serve, saying, he said something to me, don't be afraid, you will not die, you will stand before Caesar, and for your sake, God has given the life of all these people. And verse 25. 
Therefore, take heart, man, for I, I believe. I believe. God, that it will be just as it was told me. I believe. See, that's how faith, hope gets its substance. God spoke. Look at the situation. Doesn't make any sense. We've been floating around in this sea. Everybody's lost hope. We've thrown all our food. We've thrown our tackle. There is no way we are going to escape. There is nothing left to escape. There is no, we are in the middle of nowhere in the ocean. But God spoke. The vessel does not matter. In this case, the vessel is an angel. But the vessel really doesn't matter. What matters is who spoke, not through whom he spoke. Because the one he speaks through may be a person like Eli or Eli, the high priest, blind, doesn't hear, but he spoke. Hannah believed. The reason she believed is because it was God who was using his lips. So it could be an angel or it could be a blind man. It does not matter. The vessel does not matter. Like I said, the vessel does not matter. What is in it is what matters. It could be a glass glass, it could be a steel glass, it could be a silver cup, it could be a gold cup. What matters in it is, is it going to sustain me or not? So the vessel, of course, the greater the vessel, the more faith you have. Okay, when an angel comes and speaks, of course your faith is pumped up. But the fact of the matter is, even when the angel speaks, he's still speaking the word of the Lord. So he says the angel spoke, and therefore... He says, I believe, I believe, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. This is what happened to Zachariah, John's father. When an angel, that was angel Gabriel, he said, he didn't believe. He looked at his circumstances and said, how is that possible? I am old, my wife is old. He said, do you know who's, who's speaking to you? I'm Gabriel who stands before God and have brought you the word from the throne of heaven and you don't believe. The problem is, this is too big an issue <laughs> to be left to your belief. Because this is not about you. This is the voice in the wilderness which has to come before Jesus can come. So you know what? Before you go out and speak your unbelief to your wife, I'm going to shut your mouth for nine months. Don't speak. Don't speak. Because both belief and unbelief, which is the substance of our faith belief, comes from our mouth. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth. So remember, when Israel, second generation, got into the promised land, the first thing God taught them is, shut your mouth for seven days. Don't speak. How I am going to bring these walls, you don't know. Just believe me. It will only come on the seventh day. Don't try to imagine and this thing. Just keep your mouth shut and walk. The seventh day, I will tell you to shout, shout. So the first thing he taught them is not to speak. It is teaching them how not to speak. Okay? So these are fundamental lessons in the Bible. When if you, if you read the format over there, you will see, you know, even about love, when you go to First Corinthians uh, 13, verse 4 onwards, it will teach us what is love, what is not love. 
So sometimes we need to know what is not love, what is not faith, what is not hope. Sometimes the negative gives us more understanding of what is. Love does not. Love does not. Love does not. Love does not. Did you see that? Love does not. So if you see that, you need to realize this is not God's kind of love. This is a human love. This is not God's. Because God's love does not. Does not. Because we need to know all these things. We need to know what love is. We need to know what real hope is. We need to know what faith is. And sometimes we will also learn only by knowing what it is not. What it is not. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. And verse uh, 1 9. I'm right, Philippians 1 9. Got it? Philippians 1.9 I pray, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. In what? In knowledge. And in discernment. No? Discernment is where you understand what it is not. Knowledge is where you know what it is. We need knowledge. okay? Because you see, the example I used yesterday, in, uh, in the Nepali meeting, connecting with this verse is that, you know what? Uh, I have six children, of which one died. Okay? That one died at the age of 40, 45 days. And I have pictures of that baby. But that pe- baby's pictures finished on 45. There's no more pictures after that. So, the love for that child is restricted by time. 45 days. But of the other children, I have pictures from their birth till this year. So, my love for the other children is not like the love for the other one. It has grown with knowledge. Take the example of Noella. Oh, I have the picture the day she was born. One month, two months, three months, six months, one year, two years, ten years, eleven years, twenty years, twenty-five. All these pictures. So you know what? The love is not the way I loved her when she was born. It is grown with knowledge. Knowledge of a person. God is saying, this bit, Paul is saying, this is my prayer, that your love may abound. More and more. How? In the knowledge of who God is, and also discernment of who God is not. Because there is a deceiver. So you need discernment. Because why? Because love never fails. Love never fails. And in a human relationship also, actually, that is the way it should be. That's why they have this saying in English, marriage is, or marriage or love in marriage is like wine. The older it gets, the better it should be. It doesn't work functionally unless you apply the principles of God's kingdom to it. But it will always apply with God. The reason it will always apply with God is because He is perfect and His love never fails. With man, it's different because both people have to change and one person or both people may refuse to change. 
That's why when it comes to human love, in Peter will say, live with your wife with understanding, meaning understand, grow in that knowledge. So there is something over here, whether it is hope or whether it is faith or whether it is love, it will grow with knowledge. Knowledge of what? Two things. One, when it comes to love, one, and faith and hope, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his kingdom, how he works. These two, the knowledge of these things will increase our hope, our faith, and our love for God. It will increase. Okay. We love him because he first loved us. That's where our security is. But everything else is connected with my love for him. So my love for him has to increase. God's love for me is not going to increase. He has loved me perfectly with an everlasting love. He doesn't increase or decrease because he is God. But my love has to increase. And my love will increase only based on knowledge. And we'll give one and we will stop for today. We'll go to Hebrews chapter 1, 8 and 9. Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. Then we'll go to Psalm, uh, I think it's Psalm 33, 5. Okay, I want NIV, okay, Psalm 33, 5. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now look at verse 9. You loved? Who loved righteousness? God loved? So if you love God, you will love what he loves. As simple as that. So the motivation is love. You will love what the one whom you love loves. He loves righteousness. He hates lawlessness. So you need to hate. If I love God, I will love what he loves. And I will hate what he loves, what he hates. Are you getting the picture? So, my love for him will abound with knowledge. And people aren't, it's the problem in the kingdom of God is not that God doesn't love them. The problem with the kingdom of God is that people really don't love God. Look at Psalm 33, 5. Look at the, the revelation there. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. And the earth is full of his unfailing love. So what does the Lord love? He loves righteousness. And he loves justice. And this earth is full of his unfailing love. So the problem is, God is love. God is holy. Out of his love proceeds everything called mercy, compassion, kindness, all this. Out of his holiness proceeds truth, righteousness, justice, all proceeds from it. So in his love, he showed mercy and saved me. Now he says, would you love what I love? Would you love what I love? No. So God uses a different time. He will talk about light and darkness, good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, love and hatred. These words are talking about two sides. Two sides. And the primary concept over here is what motivates everything that God does is love. 
But you cannot take God is love and separate it from God is truth. God is truth. Love does not set me free. It is truth that sets me free. But the reason I can receive the truth is because God is love. He does not compromise his truth because of love. So you have this, yesterday I showed the Nepali church. This is how it works. God is love. That is what makes him do everything. And God is truth. Where you have truth, you will have justice. Where there is no truth, you cannot have justice. You go to a court, you have that woman with scales and her eyes. Meaning, she is just. She is fair. Truth is just. When you go into the court and when you get in the dock, you have to take your Bible or whatever religious, put your hand and swear, I will say nothing but the truth and only the truth. So what happens in a courtroom is connected with truth because where there is no truth, you cannot have justice. We have so much injustice in this world is because there is no truth in the courtrooms. Forget the governments. Forget the Congress, forget the Senate, forget all these people. If the courtrooms are based on truth, there will be justice. Because the highest power in India is not the President. It is not the Prime Minister. It is the Supreme Court. It is the Supreme Court. The Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi, had to resign when the Allahabad High Court went against her. They upheld justice and they cancelled her election. She resigned. Okay, You need to realize the highest authority in a land is supposed to be the court, the Supreme Court. Their job is to bring forth justice, but justice is based on truth. So you have truth and the result of upholding truth is justice and the result of justice is what is called righteousness. As soon as you have righteousness, what comes is liberty. Let us say you go to court, criminal court, whatever, and the judge upholds the truth. He pronounces the verdict which is just and you receive righteousness. You are free. He says not guilty. The first thing happens to you in is you know you are free. Liberty. And along with that liberty comes two things. You came here into the courtroom in bondage. You're going to go out in liberty. The first thing you have, you have peace. You have joy. Did you see what the Bible says? Righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is the kingdom of God. But how does it all begin? It all begins with truth. It all begins with truth. But why does truth come? Why does God bring truth before us? It's because he's a God of love. If he's not a God of love, the truth is this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That is the truth. Can the truth set me free? No. Cannot. So you need love. That's why at the cross, love and truth meets. And truth and peace have kissed together. That is the Christmas method. What I'm telling them. Going around doing all these stuff without actually preaching the gospel message is not going to save anybody. What's the point of going around and singing these carols? Has Carol saved anybody? Unless the truth is there in the songs. One group comes into your apartment complex. They sing, no? Joy to the world. Another group is coming from a broken part of that church singing. And they both look the other way and walk away. Where is love? Where is truth? 
The Methodist group is going up the stairs. The Baptist group is coming down the stairs. They won't even wish each other. What message are you putting across? The reason is there is neither love nor truth. And you know, the, the devil got into the middle of it and he has changed the entire dimension of Christmas. Most of the world doesn't know Christ. They know Santa Claus. Santa didn't die for me. To receive Santa into your house, you neither need love nor truth. And he has taken away, the enemy has taken away the, 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 the whole Christmas. There's no Christ there anymore. Okay. There's no truth there anymore. There is no love anymore. So the love of Santa is, you know what? Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. My name is Jimmy. It is about taking. What does Santa do? He give you gifts and you give gifts and he gives you gifts and he gives. He never scolds you. He will never tell you the truth. He's such a nice, chubby old man. That is the only birthday of a person celebrated in human history where he gets nothing and everybody else receives gifts. I gave that example, no? Remember yesterday if you were there? Imagine it is my birthday and you decide to call me for my birthday, give me a surprise. And when I come for the birthday, I look around, something funny is happening. You're all exchanging gifts to one another and I'm standing, what's happening over here? Pastor, we are so happy it's your birthday, so we are giving gifts to one another. Right? So this is the problem. Our problem is there is the love of God and there is this truth. If I love God, I never have to doubt God's love because the truth is there on the cross. The truth. God so loved the world. What is the truth? He gave his only begotten son. Now the question is, if you love me, where is the truth? What is your hope based on? What is the substance of your hope? What is the substance of your hope? Where is your faith? Because faith is connected with the word and truth is also the word. How, what is your hope? First Thessalonians 5.8 Where does it come from? Okay. Since we belong to the day. You know, like I said uh, on, uh, on Wednesday, okay, Jesus is coming like the thief in the night. For whom? He's not coming for his church in the thief in the night. Those who are living in darkness, he's coming in the night. But for those who are in the day, God is light. God is light. If you are in the light, you have fellowship with God and fellowship with one another. So love is brought over the light and love is brought together because fellowship is connected with love. Okay, so if you are in the light, if you are in the light, that day will not catch us un, un, even if it is your death. You won't die in an accident. You won't die suddenly in your sleep, unprepared, if you are in the day. Because love and truth, love and light are going together. What happens? Let us be self-controlled. How? Putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Three things come together. How do you live life fearlessly? Whether you're going to die or whether he's going to come to take you, how do you live life 
fearlessly. He says, bring these three things together. You need to have faith, you need to have love, and you need to have hope. You need to have hope. And that's where it comes. Okay, And that's why the whole thing is put across in terms of a marriage. Because in the marriage, what happens is people change. The people change. We had a very interesting conversation last night. <laughs> it was very funny. I don't want to repeat it over here. But you need to realize this is how it worked. Because we need to have a culture that is biblical. We don't need a culture that is picked up from our cultures. They may agree, they may not agree, but we have a culture that is biblical. So you have a culture which is there, which is Rebecca leaves Haran and goes and marries Isaac. And the simple question to ask is, who changed? Isaac or Rebecca? Rebecca. Not Isaac. Rebecca changed. She has to fit in with Isaac. Now ask me this question. Who changes? Christ or the church? The church. Now, the husband is not Christ. He's imperfect. So don't take it one-on-one and say this is his imperfect. She is imperfect. Okay? So both have to change like him because the husband is being conformed to the image of Christ. The wife is also being. So which one is that one? But the change in a home actually happens with the wife and not with the husband. If a home has to flow according to the kingdom principle, you have to go back to biblical principles. Otherwise, you know what happens. What that home will not have is, it will not have peace and joy. It will only have compromise. You can have a false peace and a false joy based on compromise. And the devil brings that into the kingdom of God. People don't have a real peace or a real joy. They have a peace and a joy that is based on compromise. They are saved, but they have made compromise with the world. So they have a peace. That's a peace that is temporal. They don't have eternal peace. They don't have this confidence that I can with joy look forward to the Lord's coming. They don't have that confidence. They have confidence now. Their confidence now is in the temporal because it is not based on truth. It is based on compromise. Paul had absolute confidence. Not about this. He says, we despaired. We thought <laughs> we are going to die. But he had no fear about eternity. To be absent in the body is to be present with the Lord. My departure is near. I'm going to get a crown. So he had absolute confidence about the other side because there was absolutely no compromise on this side. So we need to examine. That's where knowledge comes. That's where discernment comes. Is my peace real? Is it of God that passes understanding? That is where the letter to Philippians is such an important letter because he is lying in prison and he's actually practically living this life out where he says, rejoice in the Lord always and again I tell you rejoice. And he says the peace of God guarding your mind and heart. So he has joy, he has peace and he's absolutely secure in the righteousness of God. The reason is he loves God. It's not that God loves him. God loves all of us. But he loves God. 
and he has changed in his love for God. So your love for God, your love for a person is based on this. If you love a person or you love God as a person, you love what he loves and you're willing to change. So Jesus says, he loved righteousness. So the question is, do we love righteousness? Because the motivating factor is, is love. Because there is a chasing after righteousness in religion. And the end of it is emptiness. Righteousness for righteousness sake. Don't ever do it. You will stop. Why is that in the kingdom of God? Very few people finish the race. Because those who finish the race, their motivation was love. Because love never fails. Love never fails. It is connected with a person. You will never wake up in the mo- any morning in your life if love is your motivation and saying, I think today I am fully conformed to the image of Christ. You will say you are not. I still have and I still I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to because he is the reason. He is the reason. This is how it works. This is how it works. We need to, we need to look at the pictures over there in the Bible and we look at the theory over there and see how does it work? How does it work? This is how it works. That's what God is asking about. That is what God is talking about. He says, you know what? Love never fails. You go, let's go, let's go further. Let, I don't want to finish it right over there. Let's go to, again to Corinthians, 1st Corinthians uh, 13 and verse 7. Corinthians 13, word 7. Got it? 7 and 8. What does it say? Yeah. (coughs) It bears all things. Believes all things. What is belief? It's faith. Hopes all things. Did you see about faith something over there? Faith believes, love believes in all things. Connected to God. The love of God in me believes in everything about God and hopes in all things. And that love never fails. That love never fails. He says, everything else will fail. It will vanish. When will it vanish? Go to verse 9. Okay. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. Come on, John, keep going, okay? Till uh, maybe uh, 12. We know in part, we prophesy in part, but when which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. What is perfect? It's love. God says, when your heart has been consumed with the perfect love of God for God, it doesn't matter whether your faith fails or your hope fails, your knowledge fails, your mysteries fail. It does not matter because even then you will stand firm till the end because the perfect has come. You are no longer knowledge dependent. What is going to happen tomorrow? You are no longer gift dependent. 
You are not dependent upon any of those things. You are not. Because the perfect has come. The perfect has come. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, 39 to 40. And all these, having a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Who are these people? Who were wandering in caves, wandering in the wilderness, all for the sake of Christ. Why? God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Did you see? How did they stand there? Because in their hearts they were made perfect in love. And now they are waiting for their perfection in their bodies. So this word, whenever perfect is used in the Bible, it is always connected with love. You can never be perfect in faith. It will fail. Hope will fail. Faith will fail. Knowledge will fail. Everything will fail. God says, you know, one thing will not fail. Love will not fail. If you go to Matthew 4 and verse 48. Matthew 4, verse 48. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. You know that entire word context is? It's about love. It's about love. And based on this, go back and today's meditation actually was like beautiful, really, really beautiful. Tells it about three kinds of love. One is about me. The other is about we. And the third thing is about the others. People whom you do not know. People whom you may even actually dislike. Or people who are actually actively harming you. So it is not talking about eros, which has its own benefits. It is not talking about philia. It's talking about something which is a completely different dimension altogether. God says, when that comes, when that comes, when everything else fails, it does not matter. You are an overcomer. You are an overcomer. You cannot be defeated. This is how I wrote it. The summation. It is to be in the courtroom, contending for justice, yet feeling Sympathetic for the accusers and praying for them. It is to be lying in your dungeon in your prison cell and bless your abusers. It is to be hanging on the cross and pray for your enemies. There is no gift working on the cross. There is no gift working on the cross. There is no mysteries working on the cross. There is no supernatural knowledge working on the cross. The only thing that is working on the cross is love. That has been made perfect. And that cannot be over. The enemy has no answer to that. Has no answer to that. There is no answer to that. And what God is trying to do to his people is trying to move people towards that. Towards that. You look at the life of Joseph. The perfect example is basically that. He's moving him towards that. So he needs to be there 13 years. For what? For his love to be made perfect. Because he's not going to just rule. He's going to rule over those who abused him and caused him 
God is saying, do you have my kind of love in your heart? There are a lot of people listening overseas, okay? And many of them are old. Not old in old, but old in their 80s, 90s and all. And after they got saved, they have gone through unbelievable suffering. Now if you need to ask them, if you were to ask me, why are they going through so much suffering in the last two years, three years after they got saved? The reason is, they are running for something. The problem was that you did not get saved when you were 17 or 18. You got just a few years left. So the trials and the texting which should have been taken 60 years in your life is being compressed into two or three years so you can get your crown. You are not going to get a crown unless you have suffered with him. It is not possible because it is written. For those who get saved young, it is spaced out. But those who get saved very old, you get saved at 80 and you're going to die at 85. 80 years of trials and testing has to be compressed in 5 years. If you understand and you are running for that, you understand, okay, I'm running for my crown, I'm running for this. And God says, yeah, I get you. I get you. You need to get your crown. You need to have my love. Because the only thing that will not fail and make an overcomer and overcomer is love. Is love. So there is hope. There is hope. Okay. And going back to Romans 5, 5, actually you should read the whole five verses. You have faith, you have hope, and you have love. And then finally it says, the hope does not disappoint us. Why doesn't hope disappoint us? Because the the love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Okay. See, Paul didn't reach there in one day, but he had to reach there one day where he's able to cry out for the Jews who are beating him up everywhere. And the church that abandoned him. You know? See, you have two choices. Either you run your race and we expect all these things. Or you say, Lord, I just want to make it to heaven. Can you just, can I just detach from that race? Leave me alone. A lot of people have chosen to stay out of the race. Okay. Temporal gain, eternal loss. Or temporal loss and eternal gain. God says, you chose. He's not pushing anybody into this, okay? He's not pushing anybody. We have to choose. That's why he says, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my And This is the one who loves me. He has my commandments. What are those commandments? They're based on knowledge. How do you know what to obey if you don't know what you're supposed to obey? How do you obey what you don't know? Right? How do you know? So, how does it? A man, a woman, gets to know the likes and the dislikes of Jesus. It's connected with a person. Lord, what do you love? What do you hate? When, like I said, when you read the Bible, look how God functions. That's the only reason you meditate upon the Word of God. 
this is who God is. This is the one who loves me, loved me, gave me his life. This is the one I love, Lord. What is that you love? What is that you love? What is that you love? What is that you hate? What you love, I love. What you hate, I hate. And he says, may your love abound more and more. In what? In the knowledge of God and in discernment. Let's pray. Let's have Peter and we shall pray.